0: episode 32 of the dead Serial podcast i'm your host lj on this episode i'm sitting down with my old friend brian asoro we're gonna rap mainly about his mountaineering or expedition experience uh, i've been really looking forward to catching up with brian for a long time you'll we'll get a little bit more on his intro throughout our conversation appreciate you guys tuning in and i'll catch you at the
1: end brian what's up john little john as it were lj (laughs) good to see you again dude it's been forever dude uh it has been a minute or two so
0: maybe we recap uh i know you through salt lake city hardcore scene high school days for forever back when ninth tenth
1: grade whatever 25 years damn near (laughs) insanity old bastards correct never thought i'd say i knew anybody for 25 years Now you know a lot about these. Correct. <laughs> Greg, Greg, I've known for 34 years. Greg Christensen, what's up? Yeah. Make it up, Big Daddy. Hope the integrity show was good. Oh, that's right. You didn't go.
0: Oh, shit. <laughs> Neither did LJ. Real cool, guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad those tickets went to use. And the booth. $75. Well spent, <laughs> dude. I could lit it on we've been Entertainment. Sorry, though. Chad. Sorry. <laughs> Next time, Blade.
0: So what the fuck have you been doing since? Fuck, I don't even know. the Last time I saw you were playing "Emerge from Darkness." <sighs> yeah, fucking wicked, sweet, Salt Lake City fuck hardcore, yes, Straight band. Edge, dude. <laughs> that was the stupidest thing I ever did. Uh, was, the was band st- or Straight yeah. Edge or well
1: being uh, friends with all of us or what? No, <laughs> being. Sh- I'll, I'll, let me quantify this and put a fine to fine fine point on this. Being straight edge while doing a small tour—it <laughs> would have been way funner if we were drinking.
0: Were you vegan or vegetarian dur- during that tour?
1: Uh, I was coming out of being—it was I just stopped being ved- vegan, and then on that trip, I stopped being vegetarian. I had the chicken nuggets from McDonald's.
0: So you started eating a little Correct. bit better towards the end. Correct. Well,
1: maybe not better. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far better a bit better. There were more options. I wasn't eating dirt and grass anymore. But there were more options. Correct. That's all. I'm, try- I'm trying to be cordial here. Oh, I appreciate
0: that. <laughs> Nothing but love for the vegan listeners. So what
1: the, what the hell, dude? What have you been doing? Ah. Oh. Everything. Graduated
0: high school. Graduated high school. Moved out of Sandy, Utah.
1: Moved out of Sandy. Lived in Seattle for seven years. Nice. Been back in Salt Lake for a decade this summer. Uh, been married once before on my second marriage, which is way better the second time around. Uh, Godspeed. Correct. God willing, this one will last longer. Well, actually, it's almost lasted twice as long. So
0: Nice. Even you we better were, say what's up to yeah, if Mary, Beth, up thank the wife. you're married, thank you. One. <laughs> yeah.
1: No props to the first one, for sure. (laughs) Fuck (laughs) her. I did not know who she is, but whatever. Exactly. (laughs) God, what else? Everything. Uh, What are you doing for work? I have now just changed jobs. So I was at a company called Cisco, so a technology company. I was off and on with them for 16 years. There was a brief period a while ago that I was at a startup, but I've been back or was back for seven years. And I quit a month ago and have now gone to... um, a company like resell Cisco and other technology companies. Okay. Um, somewhere I never thought I would go in my career, like just the partner reseller community, something that was never interesting to me. Uh, but a guy that I've worked for a couple times before, this Australian guy, Jared, um, he gave me a call and it was I was talking about that I was kind of looking around for to do something different, and said, "Well, if you're looking at something different, why don't you come over here and you know be the sales leader for the whole like western half of the U.S.?" And I'm like. Kind of a big deal. Okay, so uh, get to build a team from scratch. I don't have anyone working for me right now, so get to build a team from scratch, which is awesome and exciting. Uh, get to work for a boss who's been awesome to me. Um, and this company that's based out of Ireland is a bunch of super cool dudes that are just all about taking care of the customer at all expenses, up to and including their own, even if they lose money on taking care of customers. So they've got... Just retain the client. Just retain that's the, the client, do what's best for them and whatever that looks like. So... They've got a hell of a lot of integrity and customers love them and so i figured why not give it a shot yeah. so uh last week week before last was my first uh first day damn so just figuring it out new gig yeah new role
0: well that's new fucking job bitching. yeah what what else i mean i i want to get to obviously right, What what would you refer to it as mountaineering expeditioning sure weekend warrior, the, uh, weekend warrior. <laughs> a little bit more than that well, but i don't want to jump right into yeah. that uh so w- what do you get up to now that i think you had a seven year goal right seven summits and seven different or er, right seven summits and seven different continents yep
1: so uh, seven summits is getting to or is the tallest point on every continent um, and how you define a continent is a little bit squishy. If it's geopolitical, <laughs> if it's an island, if it's uh, where the boundary of, of them are. But there's generally speaking seven well accepted continents. Uh, and then this particular goal is to try to get to the top of each one of them. Nice. And finally did three years ago. And we'll get back to that. So before we dive into
0: that, now that you have accomplished that, what do you do? What are you
1: doing outside of work and family? Family, got a a two-and-a-half-year-old who's batshit crazy. He's awesome, full of energy, and certainly a story I can tell because he had an interesting uh, entree into the world. Uh, But, yeah, being a parent is way harder than any mountain I've ever been on and anything else I've ever done. Love Bear, who's the name of our son. Uh, Love Bear, hate kids. Seriously? Bear? Yeah.
0: That is the best fucking name for a little boy I've ever heard.
1: It's pretty awesome. If we get into his story, I'll tell you why particularly I picked his name. let's roll with it. Why? Um, That's perfect. So,
0: natural (laughs) parlay
1: into that. So, Bear um, had an interesting uh, entry into the world. Mary Beth tried to do her best through the whole pregnancy of, you know, eating as good as you can and exercising as long as you can and just doing all the the quote unquote right things and um, then her labor started to get a little bit more gnarly and um she was able to she didn't have the natural birth that she wanted to have because it was going on so long that she eventually got drugs and it was a really fascinating thing to watch like the power of drugs like fentanyl where she was (laughs) in excruciating agony and they give her a shot of fentanyl and she's sawn logs in between contractions i was like holy shit like (laughs) and it was also fascinating to watch like the half-life of that drug so Basically, the way that it worked is you get it, and then the next time you get it, it's going to last half as long, and then the next time you get it, it's going to be half as long as that. So it lasted 40 minutes maybe the first time, 20, then 10, and then they would give it to you three times max throughout the session. That was it. Um, And it was really fascinating. Like it almost like clockwork. As soon as 40 minutes was up, she was back in pain again, and same with the 20 and same with the 10. Um, (laughs) Bro. Yeah, so (laughs) A, for those of you that uh, are mothers, Huge respect, not the least of which, with it being Mother's Day yesterday, but it's just such an amazing so moms, thing to to watch and watch another human go through that. Well, and I meant my moms, but all
0: moms. Yeah, well, especially. big Sorry. up to your mom too.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'll come say hi. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, at some point, it was starting to look like there was challenges getting him out because um, he. It turns out he kind of had like his arm tucked behind the back of his head and it was keeping him from coming out and it was starting to get to the point where she pushed so hard that his heart rate would drop and almost stop um, because of the position he was in. So they were eventually able to get him out um, and the closer they got to him coming out, the more people started coming in the room. And by the time he was out, there was at least a dozen people in the room. That's going to be scary as shit. Yeah, and no one's telling you exactly why. All these people, they're bringing carts in, there's all like all their wheeling stuff in, and it's kind of like, what's going on? And they pull him out, and he wasn't breathing right away. Um, and they had to get him over to a table. And, you know, my wife's totally out of it because she's on an epidural at this point. So she's a happy camper, just kind of, whoa, this is what we do. <laughs> and having I'm just having a baby. Having a baby, yeah. and I can't feel half my body. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm just kind of standing back a little bit in shock just watching, you know, not knowing exactly what's happening. And then they got him breathing, which was good, and then they immediately moved him over to this um like incubation kind of room, and he was having uh they shared with us finally that he was having seizures and he was seizing. And um they're trying to get that under control and figure out, you know, why he was seizing. And because we uh, had the baby at Altaview, which does not have a NICU, because there we had no indications that there would be any complications. Be any complications. Yeah. We were good to go. She had her uh, uh, not, uh, midwife um, delivering it, and it was all good. And then he was wouldn't stop seizing, so then he got to take a life flight out to IMC. So this is now the middle of the night, and neither of us have slept in like 24 hours. So I bolt and. Dry, it was like 4 or 5 in the morning and driving like 100 miles an hour to IMC following the life flight yeah. over there. Uh, meanwhile, Mary Beth's still at the hospital because I haven't discharged her yet. Then I think I got an hour of sleep on the couch in the, the hospital because they're like, well, there's nothing you can do right now. He's you know being taken care of. Go get sleep because you're not going to get a whole lot of sleep. It's up for now. Sleep hour. while you can slept as much as we could, which was an hour, and, and then I swore I heard my name being called, so I jumped up, and by that point I was wide awake. Um, and it was, a, I think it was that first day? First or second day being in the NICU. Must have been the, the second day. Um, they'd, they were able to control the seizures, but in essence, he had to be on such heavy meds that he was just basically unconscious because he was so... He was just um, doped up. Totally doped up to keep the... Fuck, Caesars down, and it was the second day when uh, they had the neurologist in to deliver the news that during they think during labor, maybe just before he had a major stroke. Um, actually? What? Two strokes, one major one that is since well, not since at the time damaged about sixty percent of the left side of his brain. Um, and then he had a small one on the right side that uh, a little bit well, is quite a bit smaller but hit the right side of his brain. So in essence, what happened or what they suspect happened is when you're an infant, and I'm not quite sure the point at which after birth, it, your heart valve changes, but basically um, blood can free flow through your body and like the valve doesn't close in your heart when you're an infant. Apparently doesn't need to like you're a fish, I guess. Um, but sometimes <laughs> shortly thereafter, it flaps down and like blood only goes one way and circulates one way. But what they think happened during labor just before blood clot transferred from Mary Beth to him and then that went up to his brain is their best guess of what they think happened. Like there was no other indication of anything like she shouldn't have been on blood thinners. Like just, we had no reason and to think just to do like, anything Total different. random. Total random. Um, wow. And so then being in the NICU for next week and it's pretty intense because, you know, you had, well, A, being in the NICU um, for anybody that's been there, the ICUs have like doctors all the time and yeah. around them. Um, ICUs and, are not fun. Not fun. And no. you've got him that's, you know, he's just out of it, um, you know, non-interactive in any capacity, not like babies are super interactive. Um, and then, like, the, the, the doctors and everyone just kept telling us how severe it was, how severe it was, how severe it was. And then finally they're like, paint us a picture. Like, what are we looking at? Yeah, like, he keeps saying fuck? severe. What does that mean? And the neurologist's like, okay. She's like, worst case is he'll be in a wheelchair. He'll never walk. He'll never talk. He'll likely have a shortened lifespan because he'll have health complications health complications because of not being able to walk or talk Um, and that's worst case best case is he'll likely walk he'll likely talk um, and it'll all be delayed and look different but um, and he'll um, have what he's formally diagnosed with is cerebral palsy because the right side of his body is just um, severely impacted like his right hand he just keeps like balled up and like doesn't really engage or I don't think he thinks it's like part of him if you tell him to move it he will and engage it but um, yeah, it's certainly a bum limb for sure. Jesus Christ, um, dude. <laughs> yeah. So that was his entry into the world. So about day three or day four, we still hadn't picked a name for him. Uh, Mary Beth had come up with lists of names, um, as a lot of mothers do. Uh, and I was pretty adamant about, I wanted to meet who, the boy, excuse me, he was a boy. I wanted to meet him first before picking a name. I like, just Kind of the same way. Feels weird know. to like name yeah. someone and not meet him. Uh, and when he was, uh, in the NICU, like after a couple days and we still hadn't picked a name and, um, and I'll pause there and I'll finish that story. But what we had been calling him, for those of you that have ever watched the show, the league, we'd been calling him Chalupa Batman <laughs> for like three months period. Cause we hadn't picked a name yet. And we'd watched that show. And, uh, if you, if you haven't watched the show, there's this, there's a scene where, a pregnant couple loses a bet and they get to let one of the other guys name the baby and the guy names him Chalupa Batman so they have to name the kid Chalupa Batman so we're in the NICU for three days and like one of the nurses who was fantastic that now of course her name totally escapes me um, she was just humored it and so she would like put up Chalupa Batman name tag signs on and stuff like that and when they do shift change the other Chalupa nurses would come Batman. in and be like is his name really is it, is it really Chalupa Batman because for those of you that live in Utah, Utahns name their kids like fucked up weird shit that's like made up not real names and spell it weird and put X's in there. So.
0: You'd have no idea if you'd... Yeah.
1: So it's totally plausible that someone here could have named their kid Chalupa Batman. But anyway, by about day three, you know, we were sitting in there and Mary Beth's like, you know, have you thought about a name? And I'm like, you know, he's been through some shit and he's going to have a hard life and he needs a tough name. And Bear nice. was one of the names that was on the list. Uh, actually, because we had a, an outside magazine that come and Bear Grills was on the front of it, and so yeah. that name had landed on the list. But then we're like, we can't really name a kid Bear, so it fell off the list. And uh, then, yeah, we just figured he needed a tough name and to to line up with. Going to have he is having it does have a challenging life. Everything he does is harder for him, but yeah. super awesome kid and super happy and works hard with a smile good. on his face. But just, he's doing well. Like he is trending towards best case. Like he's running around. Got him like in soccer lessons. He plays Puck, basketball yes. better than the five year old next door with his one hand. <laughs> and, uh, he's got a couple words. He's got like five words. So like language is certainly delayed, but super happy dude. Freaking hell of a character and um, yeah. That's we a, can that's dive a, into others of. That's, what an, that's an insane
0: done. story. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and I was like, yeah, let's roll with that for a minute. That'll suck up some minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Holy shit, dude. Well, what's up, Bear?
1: Yeah. He's a, <laughs> he's a he's a he's a crackup. He's a two and fun a half now. Day. Two and a half, it'll be three in August. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So, and I attribute the vast majority, lot, almost entirely, of it to Mary Beth. Like, she didn't go. She's full time stay at home with Bear and nice. taking him to therapies and making sure he's working on the things he needs to work on and challenge him to talk and challenge him to use his right hand and being a good mom, being an awesome mom and just challenge him to like we don't let things be easy for him. Like everything's harder anyway. And yeah. Like if he falls down, dude, figure it out. You gotta get back up, bro. Like or you know whatever he does, it's like not just like you know coddling him and take you know like doing everything for him. It's like dude, you you're gonna have to figure this shit out. And so the sooner you start being self-sufficient and being able to take care of yourself, like we're not gonna be here for you forever. So yeah, um, yeah, push on that. So it's been a really interesting experiment in psychology and everything else. <laughs> patience <laughs> and, and patience. I and, can't even imagine, dude.
0: Like holy fuck pretty wild on well, that side we haven't murder suicide the yet the kid <laughs> hashtag no murder suicide <laughs> yeah but i understand it too
1: <laughs> don't do it but i get it
0: <laughs> reminds me of that flick heathers with christian slater and monona Ryder and the the song teenage suicide don't do it <laughs> i don't know it's just popped in <laughs> it. it's it's stone ass over here. we joke about it we've had a pretty dark
1: <laughs> sense of humor uh since the dawn of time and i think um i know it made a lot of our friends and family really uncomfortable because i think certainly for myself and i know for my wife we used joking about it as kind of a way of dealing with and processing like this really heavy news and um you know having to have uh what could have the prospect of his life be dramatically altered and just like in immediately it's whether of, you know of course you never know if your kids are even going to like you when they get old enough let alone anything but of course like right. i'm sure most people have dreams about what they want their kid to do like i you know have a really awesome relationship with my dad and when this happened then i was like immediately i'm like oh well, fuck there's like i'm not going to be able to have the same thing with him and who knows if i ever would have anyway because um, he may have said you know fuck you dad and not been your friend <laughs> which is certainly possible but just like to have it can that can always happen of, still could happen yeah uh, but to have those things just kind of like taken away and like just not knowing like is he going to have to live with this his whole life is he going to be able to have a job is he ever going to be able to like find meet, someone who loves him meet like, abroad fall in love totally get married all that shit yeah I mean I'll take him to a brothel if I have to but <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd have fun in Bangkok that's a good place
0: but careful of the Thai boys out here in Bangkok. Yeah. You,
1: you gotta you can't even just check their Adams apple something and get us <laughs> shaved. It's not the surefire you thought it was. Fucking terrible. Um,
0: I asked everybody for a movie clip or a clip from a TV show. Yeah. Uh, I think this this might be a good time. We can toss that in. Uh, let, up a let bit. everybody dry their eyes a little bit and, and collect themselves. Do you want to tell everybody what this clip is from and why you chose it, or Do you just want to play it? And then we'll come back and you can throw out there why you chose this
1: afterwards. Uh, let's just let it roll. Oh, for the sour mix in a margarita? What is this? Auschwitz? Five ingredients. Tequila. Cointreau. Lime juice. Ice. Kosher salt. Oh,
0: and sorry about the Auschwitz crack. Uh, all right. <laughs>
1: What is this clip and why
0: did you choose it? Uh,
1: this is a clip from a, a TV show called Archer. It is a cartoon on FX with a uh, a, a drunk James Bond character. It's the, an alcoholic James Bond character. Uh, and it's a show that I think I've probably seen every episode three or four times by now. Uh, when I get home from work, I don't... I don't want to watch movies or shows that I have to think. I don't want plots and subplots and <laughs> super c- cerebral shit. Like I just want to laugh at stupid stuff and uh, yeah, and I appreciate a really tasty margarita and some people can really fuck it up even though it's five ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking awesome. I've never seen Archer. I would I I think it's really funny. That that and
0: Rick and Morty are like the two shows I watch. Dude, Rick and Morty is a fuck yes, top notch. Oh yeah. Fucking t- Just waiting for the new season. Any day now. But I have several people who are like, you've never seen Archer? (laughs) You might might like
1: it. Like I say, it's an alcoholic James Bond. It's pretty funny. I don't think you can go wrong there, really. No. Can you? No. Alcohol and explosions and sexual references and innuendos. Some less so subtle. I love it. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Well, I think
0: that uh, usually is a good way for me to kind of break up the episode. And I, I... Court Harris actually, I had him tune in. I think to, to what was the episode three or four with Shaman Clarity that I had on. I told Court to tune into it, and he was like, "No, nah, that." His biggest piece of feedback was like, "You didn't really give like any background or or intro into who this individual was." So what's up, Warthog? Big it up, Warthog. That's kind of why I wanted to absolutely to bring it a full circle up for a minute, right? Yeah. But But uh, I think on the image i put. For this episode, uh, Mountaineer Extraordinaire, (laughs) which I was like, it rhymes, but it doesn't. That's close enough. uh, And I sent that to you, but we kind of mentioned it already. Seven summits and seven continents
1: in seven years. Pretty close. Eight years is about, it would have been done in six, but I had to go to do one of them three times.
0: Holy shit. Do you want to start with the one you did three times or do you want to start with the first one and, and kind of bounce
1: We throw? can take it however you want to do it. Of course, um, could leave the big surprise for last in terms of that probably has the biggest story that I tell the most frequently. And I think most people are uh, most interested in hearing about Everest. It's a household common name. Yeah. Everybody's pretty familiar. Kilimanjaro probably is the second one that... Most people generally at least know what it is, and many people know where it's at. Crazy bastard. Um, but uh, Everest is a household name, so that one generally draws the most intrigue from folks. Um, but yeah, if I rewind the clock, it all started with a, a buddy of mine, Brian Dickinson, who has also written a book about his climbing Everest because he went, um, got snowblind and was blind on the summit and had to descend alone um, and get back down the, the mountain. Uh, but he and I started together, and I remember we were sitting in, you know, meeting with a customer, and he and I were in this, just in this meeting, and he looks over, he's like, you know, he's like, we need to do the seven summits, and I'm like, what the fuck is the seven summits? <laughs> he's like, it's the seven summits, you know, it's it's the tallest point on every continent, I'm like, dude... I hate hiking. I hate hiking. I hated hiking in Boy Scouts. And I would get sick on camping trip because I just wanted to come home. Careful, and I fucking hated sick. it. Sick. Yeah. Like I made myself puke out of a tent once just so I could get out of the week-long trip. Uh, and we climbed up Lone Peak once. And I'm certain I whined from the moment I got out of the car until we turned around the next day. Like, it was horrible. I hated it. And he's like, no, no, no. This is what we're going to do. All right. So probably... No uh, no option. He just he's just he's just like, we're going to do it. I'm like, this. <laughs> ah, fuck it. All right. need something outside of work to do. And, uh, you know, I'd done a bunch of studying and certification things for work. And, you know, I kind of looked at that as, you know, hey, I did this mental thing for a while, I thought, or this psychological challenge or mental challenge. And now it's time for a physical challenge. I want to see like what I'm capable of doing. But when I really started on it, I thought it was going to be more of a yeah, again, seeing what I'm physically able and capable of doing. So we started hiking two or three or four times a week uh, for months and months and taking heavier packs and heavier packs. And then we signed up to climb um, Mount Rainier when I was living up in Seattle. And we signed up with this guide company and they they do it over three days. So like one day you get about halfway up the mountain. Then the second day they do a little skills class. So they teach you how to you know, climbing crampons, which are like these steel, sharp points that you put on the bottom of your boots, and climb with an ice axe, and how to use it, and more importantly, like how to do self-arrest. So like if you are to fall down the mountain, yeah. how to stop yourself from falling, and more importantly, if you're on a road team, stop other people.
0: Scariest thing ever. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Sorry. so... Yeah, you know, I I mean,
1: when you're... You, it, it turns out these skills are useful. Um, so <laughs> you do a day of that of just general skills climbing or training... And then the the second, third day, then you go and summit. And I just remember being on the summit and just feeling like shit. Like I had no appetite. Like I just felt nauseous. And this is 14, I think it's 14,410 feet uh, on Rainier. And yeah, just feeling like crap. Like I I had a cliff bar and it just all sat in my mouth because I could just... Just like couldn't ball wouldn't in Copenhagen. A big old dip in my mouth. And the guy's like, Brian, you gotta eat something. You've been hiking for hours and haven't had anything. So I like had some of my goo and he's like, Great, you just had twenty calories, you gotta have something else to eat and I was like this and blah blah blah.
0: delirious, maybe?
1: Probably, yeah. A little mild altitude sickness and a little delirious and um you know, at that point I was not really mindful of kind of my body and symptoms and what it was like to be at altitude. But two days prior, when I was ascending, uh, we got about halfway up the hill and I couldn't talk anymore. I looked, you know, for example, and I, I started testing it on myself because it just felt really weird. And like the, the label of the jacket that I had on was like written on the wrist. And I looked down and I just remember like I could, in my head, I could read it and then I read like, it yeah. and I go, that. Mm-hmm. Like it was like just mo- like <laughs> gibberish coming out of my mouth, and uh, the, the the guide we're with was. Yeah, like I was gonna just say what the out. fuck did the guide do? He was freaked out. but He was a young kid, so he's just like, uh, I guess let's just keep going, and if it gets worse, let me know. Like <laughs> well, doing a great job. Yeah, and meanwhile I'm freaking out because I don't know if I'm having a stroke or <laughs> or what's going on, and so I'm just like, what's your name? <laughs> And this goes on for three or four hours. And, three or four hours. Yeah, <laughs> and we just kept hiking because why not? When you they got like a twenty-three didn't year old know guy, any better, yeah, he's just like Fuck summer it. job, doing great. <laughs> he's, he's paying, getting paid fifty bucks a day to do laps on a tall mountain. <laughs> What's so the far? hell happened from there? So as it turns out, and we got to the the, the midway camp. Uh, rested for a while, and then slowly my speech kind of came back, and then I was talking normal. And as it turns out, I had a migraine, um, and I've had migraines before, uh, that but makes I've never had perfect that. Perfect sense, dude. And what? And then, but later, I was still kind of freaked out that I'd had a stroke, and I was talking to my mom, and she's like, "Oh yeah, that that's happened to me. Like I, I used to get freaked out because it would happen, and I'd you, the kids were home, and I couldn't call your dad to like tell him what was going on. Like it would have been nice." At some point, to know that you've had these symptoms because I was yeah. convinced I had oh, a stroke. I'm,
0: I'm well aware of migraines, and especially my dad's side of the family. I get some brutal fucking migraines, dude. Dude, they're horrible. But aren't I didn't they? even think about that. I That's did, weird, did though, even my mind. no
1: headache, just lost just, capability of speech. I've God. had it twice since, but yeah, it's a three times since, but it's and now oh, I can yeah. like tell like if I have this weird, this weird feeling I'm like uh oh here it comes and then it's like laying in bed and then I'm like see, mine's
0: always more sound and light sensitivity mm-hmm. and brutal headache. fucking grinding headache in just one part of my cranium dude like it's never the whole head really? be, but anyways yeah we were talking about migraines fuck migraines
1: yeah fuck a <laughs> migraine um, but anyway so we summit <laughs> get back down the mountain just have this long experience we had like a 14 hour summit day which isn't soup, which is atypical, but we had a little bit of a longer one because a little bit of nasty weather. Um, and we got down, we're having burgers and beers. And my buddy's just like, so. And we're just like, ah, oh, man, my feet hurt, my back hurts, oh, everything. That wasn't that cool. Like, it was oh, this fucking sucks. terrible. <laughs> and he's just like, so would you do it again? And I'm like, fuck yeah. And yes. it's just kind of from there on out. Uh, yeah, that was the first taste of it. And then I did like this week long mountaineering course where we were, you know, on Mount Baker. And just, you know, learn crevasse rescue. So we all got to get in a crevasse. We all got to get pulled out. We get to pull somebody out of a crevasse. Learn like all these and different... A crevasse is that metal stretcher that you see. Ah, no. So no? a crevasse okay. is... Educate so... my dumb ass. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the brief pause for education. Uh, a crevasse is uh, generally when on, especially these bigger mountains, they've got glaciers that are moving down the mountain. And so when the glacier peels apart, it'll create... These gaps in the glacier, and those are called crevasses, and these can be, you know, sometimes a couple feet deep, and other times they can be hundreds of feet deep, depending on how thick the glacier is and where it is on the mountain. Oh, shit. And the worst part about crevasses is, you know, when it snows in the winter, you'll often get enough snow that'll build a snow bridge on top. So (laughs) you can't see them sometimes when you're walking across them. Um, and then you'll punch through the snow, and then punch through. Which is why in these big mountains you generally climb on a rope team, so that if one person punches through, then the rest of the team can stop and then get them out. Fish them out, literally. Fish them out or pull them out. We learned how to build all these pulley systems, which now, of course, in my life depended on, and I couldn't rebuild. But <laughs> <laughs> or if someone else's life real actually depended on it, gone. Yeah, sorry, I'm cutting, don't need that anymore. I'm cutting the rope, <laughs> but I'm going down here ten feet. Cutting the rope. <laughs> better let one go than two um yeah and so then gosh then I signed up to climb um, unfortunately my buddy and I got like kind of our timing got off of when we were climbing mountains and so um and I was kind of heading into my first divorce and now in hindsight I should have just gone with him and climbed up in Alaska (laughs) because it wouldn't have mattered anyway yeah if I only knew but I'm like oh I can't go for three weeks you know that'll like that's bad and so anyway, I climbed Aconcagua, which is the tallest point in South, uh, South America. It's on the border of uh, Chile and Argentina. And that was my first of the seven summits, and it was it's just shy of 23,000 feet. Um, Jesus. Which, uh, in hindsight, I would have done the mountains in different order to get different experience and build up to higher altitude and feel what it, see what it felt like as opposed to just going straight to 23,000 feet. I mean, it's not a very technical mountain. It's kind of a long hike, but 23,000 feet, serious shit. Um, I mean, yeah. even from like about ten thousand feet on on, you can start experiencing some pretty serious altitude issues, and the higher you go, the greater the likelihood of getting it. And on the mild end, it just starts to feel like a nasty hangover. You just got this headache that just doesn't go away, and you feel nauseous. And just staying hydrated is kind of the only trick, and moving around. Um, yeah, so that oh, was that was the I'm first. So one. blown away <laughs> that
0: you, you delve down this path in life, dude. It's fucking
1: amazing to me it was wild and i think um you know back to my opening comment about thinking this was going to be more of a mental challenge what the fascinating thing i found over the course of climbing these mountains is how much more of a psychological and mental challenge it was i read that on your blog yeah like com. yeah go give it a read all my mountain (laughs) exploits are
0: on there and i'll plug that at the end but i i was reading through that yesterday and today just to kind of act like i kind of knew what the fuck you were going to talk about and I, I did find that interesting that you mentioned ego. So I, I'll yeah.
1: be quiet again, but it's on that note... Yeah, on that note, I think it's something that I've known many other people to not acknowledge the ego component to doing something like what I did. And, you know, try to come up with these other altruistic reasons for it. They'll try to raise money for charity as a means of paying for their own climb, and they'll more, o- not, more often than not, people raise just enough money to pay for their expedition, because these things aren't cheap. Um, and in some cases, they do raise some money for a charity, and so it's not all bad, but I would certainly contend that, I mean, ego is a big driver for doing this. I mean, you're going to climb the tallest point on every continent, not the least of which culminating in <laughs> the tallest fucking mountain on the planet. So, like... If you think there's no ego involved in that, like, you're you're feeding yourself a line of shit. Like, there yeah. is. And it's not entirely a, a bad thing because it can... I think ego, in the right light, can challenge and push you to do things that are hard and put you outside of your comfort zone. And you get to see the things that you're capable of doing and see, you know kind of a more grander spirit, like what the human spirit is capable of doing. And it's nice. really fucking fascinating to see dig that. what people can do. And egos, what put you, puts you there? Now, keeping it in check is then the other challenge yeah. so that you don't put yourself or your team in a situation where people's lives could be at risk because I, I need to get to the summit. You know, like I paid and I <laughs> took this time off and I got to get to the top. And cut summit the rope, fever, right? Yeah, cut, cut the, the rope. rope. Summit fever is a real thing, man. I mean, you get people that, Uh, especially on the bigger mountains that are more expensive and not the least of which is Everest is you get people that oftentimes because of the expense and because of the time um, and everything like it it is quite literally a one-time shot for them like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to go and therefore the closer they get the more likely they're gonna push themselves beyond where they should if they're sick or if there's bad weather or I mean it's a big part of what happened in 96 for the Into thin air is you get these people that or just hellbent and determined to get to the top because that's what they came here for. And yeah. God damn it, we're gonna get to the top. It's what we paid for. This is what I paid for. You know, yeah. I can't take this amount of time off again. My family won't let me go. You know, any number of reasons why. Understandably, it's a once in a lifetime shot, but it really puts uh, people in a pressure cooker to make really bad decisions, um, and put those around them at yeah. risk as well. Your entire team. How the fuck do you
0: get in that headspace? <laughs> Holy uh, shit! Dude. Yeah, it's it's hard. I don't even know how to navigate this conversation, <laughs> let alone fucking.
1: Yeah, wow. It's hard. So you know, jumping around and you know, getting into Everest a little bit. So the hardest part, uh, Everest, was the most difficult psychologically of the seven. Full stop. Um, because even though I did a rapid ascent, which I can uh, describe in a minute, I was still on the mountain for six and a half weeks. So being on the mountain for six and a half weeks and oh by the way my son that i talked about earlier my wife was pregnant with him when i went so i had a (laughs) a wife that was four or five months pregnant when i go to everest and more days than not you generally feel shitty like we ended up staying at advanced base camp which is about twenty one thousand feet we ended up being there for about three weeks just weather
0: delay what the fuck
1: well it was a combination of things one it was Part of our uh, acclimatization rotation, so getting u- our bodies used to the higher altitude, um, was a part of it. And then also, we saw a weather window coming and an opportunity to summit. But the wind- the window was at such a point that if we went all the way back down to base camp, we wouldn't have had enough time to recover, get back up, and make the summit bid. So we opted, collectively as a group, to just stay there and wait for it. Um and in hindsight, you know, it worked out and everybody was fine, which we'll um, certainly unpack. But 21,000 feet, man, it's just, it's, you never feel good. You just feel less shitty. Like food doesn't taste good. Sleeping is miserable. Is that
0: all due to lack of oxygen? Yeah. Simply? Like,
1: yeah. In essence. Because lots of funny things happen. Funny haha. Is the <laughs> higher altitude you go um, and the less oxygen your body has available to it. It starts um, changing things like your ability to digest foods, like your ability to digest, you know, fats and proteins. You, you you really your body really can't, and it's not able to digest what's in your stomach. And carbs only take you so far when you're burning like, you know, probably upwards of five to seven thousand calories a day just living, existing at that altitude. Holy shit! You can't replace it. Number one, because your body's not digesting it. Number two, you just don't have an appetite. Like food doesn't, nothing tastes good, no matter what you eat. Nothing tastes good. It tastes bland. Um, And it's really fascinating. Like, your body, in essence, starts eating itself. Like, you come back skinny fat. I think I lost 17 pounds of muscle mass while I was on the mountain. Um,
0: Yeah. 17 pounds of muscle mass in three weeks. Gone. Gone.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's just wild. So, yeah, you just... It just feels...
0: Psychologically, what the fuck does that feel like for three weeks at 21,000 feet just sitting there waiting for the weather to break? What the fuck,
1: dude? Well, yeah, it's... A not only the whole context of the wife being pregnant and then not eating and <laughs> like, uh, yeah. and yeah, what the, the hard part is yeah, when you have days where you, the worst days were when you just don't you don't feel like you can do anything. You don't feel like you can go for a hike. And then you just kind of, at least for me, I just death spiraled on these conversations with myself of, well, if I feel like shit, then I can't go to the, do the acclimatization hike. And if I can't do that, then I'm not going to be ready to go for the summit. And then, yeah. you know, then my whole trip's over because because I feel bad for one day. And it just, it just happens on trips like that. Like there's going to be a lot of days where you just feel like shit. And other days you're going to have great days and your teammates are going to have bad days. And keeping your head in the game when you feel like shit more often than not and you're laying in a tent sleeping like shit and you wake up and you feel like you have the worst hangover you've ever had and it's like why am I doing this? Why am I not sitting on a beach in fucking Why am Thailand? I not at home with my pregnant five wife? five months
0: pregnant wife? Yeah, why am I not with the lady boys in Bangkok?
1: Or... <laughs> why am I not literally anywhere else? Anywhere but here. Yeah, literally anywhere else. <laughs> uh, and you just ask yourself those questions and yeah, again, it's it, it it's ego and it's, you know, at this point, Um, of being on Everest, this was my third attempt on being on Everest, the second real attempt. Um, and it was just like, I need to get this done because I don't know when I'm going to be able to come back and do this. So it was, it was a little bit of a big part of that of, you know, I'm going to have a small child and the ability to leave for an extended period is probably even the desire
0: to leave is going to be slim to numb with a, a newborn baby at home. And right. Even five years old. Way cooler
1: than the first wife. Correct. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Well, if for no other reason, then certainly the second time she strongly advocated for me to go back to Everest. The third time was a bit of a negotiation (laughs) because it was kind of the agreement that we were going to start. Well, maybe
0: we rewind real quick there because we're jumping to Everest. Mm. But seven summits. I think you've named
1: three Mm. so far Kilimanjaro, which is in Africa. That was a quick one. Okay. Um, just a quick, well, quick summit climb in well,
0: Kilimanjaro, w- Africa, no big deal. No it's big quick, deal. Super quick. <laughs> super quick. We did it in six days.
1: Usually it's seven to nine. I mean, you can do it faster, but like uh, seven to nine days is about average. And the longer you take, around the seven to nine day mark, um, you're more likely to feel better and not be uh, feel as shitty because you're not like moving up the fountain as fast. But still, at the same time, like you're moving up to nineteen and a half thousand feet in a few days, like. Almost no matter what you do, you're, you're gonna feel like shit at some point. And but you know, porters carry all your stuff, so like physically that was certainly the easiest um, of the lot because <laughs> like country law Tanzania, like you have to use you have to employ porters. You cannot go it by yourself. No shit. Mm. So if you're gonna employ porters, just let them carry your shit. So <laughs> okay, Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro, uh, Aconcagua, which we talked about, to South America, Denali, which is Alaska, and that's North America. It's gonna be amazing. It was, I mean, all of
0: them have to be gorgeous.
1: Dude, it was um, such an awesome trip in so many different ways. One, I was with a crew of my homies. So, like, we joked that it was lots of laughs with a little bit of climbing. Like, we were just talking shit, and making mom jokes for three <laughs> weeks straight. I think our guides wanted to choke us because they're so fucking sick of hearing about your mom. Um, they're just having the these incredible views. Dog friendly podcast, right? <laughs> They'll be all right. <laughs> Tommy will say, "I don't." <laughs> That's your English bulldog. It is because right? in our Tommy. house we name our dogs people names and our people dog names. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tommy and Bear. Yeah, I fucking love it. <laughs> the other dog we had was Winston. So yeah, um, I think I actually did meet Winston at least so. once. I'm gonna say you probably did at least once, maybe. I'm gonna say yes. Yeah, okay, I'm interrupting again. It's
1: all good. That's three. Uh, so Denali, That's Denali. Uh, fucking beautiful amazing experience yeah with the friends we had great weather up until summit day so it was like blue skies just seeing like these amazing glaciers and this just incredible landscape of these just super intense jagged mountains and the glaciers coming down off them and just and yeah being with a bunch of your homies talking shit for days uh was awesome (laughs) physically it was the most difficult because on that one you carry three and a half weeks of stuff all on your back all at once so we had about a 65 pound pack Damn. and then another 45 pound sled strapped to us for three weeks so physically it was certainly the most um challenging and there's a couple days where it's just like oh fuck i'm done i'm done i'm done i'm done, I'm done. <laughs> you have like two more hours or whatever to go and you just left foot right foot left foot right foot and then you're just like counting footsteps you're like okay i'm gonna count to 101. Alright, <laughs> I'm gonna do it again. One, two, three, four. Because <laughs> otherwise, you just go bananas. And then you focus on how bad it sucks. So that was, you know, some of these other interesting things about these mountains is learning how to uh, deal with deal with suffering and like be in pain for a prolonged period of time or discomfort. Physically and mentally. Being wanting to be done, just like yeah. wanting to tap out and like it's just. I mean, it, it was an option, but it's not an option. Like you got to keep going. Like we got to get to the next camp. You got the whole team dependent upon you've got group gear in your bag, so you can't just stop and be done. Like you just got to keep going. And <laughs> You're not turning around. Not turning around because that means everyone's <laughs> turning around, and we're not fucking turning around because goddamn, we paid to be here and climb the goddamn mountain. So yeah, like you, you just you get to deal with discomfort, which interestingly trans- transferring back into real life is it just puts discomfort in a whole new light. Like things as simple as uh, I remember the first really long flight, because uh, for a long time I was doing a lot of global travel for work. One of the first really long flights I have, sitting in coach, and I was just like, dude, this is nothing. This is awesome. And I remember the <laughs> one before that I'd taken, I was bitching about, oh, it's uncomfortable. I can't get, you know, I can't no get No leg room. No leg room. Chair barely reclines." And then this is like, oh, dude, this is, five, this is 10 hours. I can do this all day every day. This is easy. <laughs> I'm sitting. Um So yeah, like reframes a lot of things in life, from uh, suffering to, you know, like the value of teamwork. And as cliche or cheesy as it sounds, like when you're on these mountains, especially you know the mountains like Denali and a couple of the other, well, lots of big mountains, is you're often (laughs) on a a a rope team. So your life, in some regards, is quite literally in the hands of those around you, and reciprocally, their life is in yours, for sure. Yeah, and so learning to rely on your teammates and be able to count on them and know that if shit hits the fan they can help you and vice versa um, and just pushing through like again some days you just feel shittier than others and some days you're picking up the slack and some days someone's picking up the slack for you it's just kind of the give and take of the mountains i remember ebbs and flows i'm sure totally it's gonna be crazy um my buddy papa bear sean he um one of the days when we we're coming down from high camp and he just was just totally gassed and he had he had he had our shit bucket on the back of his on the back of his bag, and he was just like God flailing, bless you, Papa Bear. <laughs> he was flailing all over the place, and like he just like couldn't do it that day. So like I grabbed a bunch of shit off of his backpack, including the shit bucket, and just strapped it to the back <laughs> of mine. I'm like, all right, let's go. And it's like that was a day I felt good, and nice. I was able to pick up some slack that day because there was other days where I couldn't, and you're dragging ass, but you still gotta move. So. Um, so that's Denali um, going on number four uh, Elbrus which is in Russia and what they count is the highest point for Europe because it's on the European continent so again back to the how do you define the continent right because um, some would contend that Mont Blanc is uh, the highest in Europe so Russia right <laughs> Elbrus is in Russia and it's on the border of Russia and Georgia um, so a little contentious part of the world with Chechen rebels that a few years prior it had blown up the the ski lift on that mountain when Putin was going to be in the area as like a way of rebelling against the Russian government so it's a little hotbed of
0: yeah uh, the world <laughs> i would say so uh,
1: but it was Serendipitously, uh, that was shortly after Russia had annexed Crimea. So their attention was on Ukraine. So a lot of the military was actually out of the area. So it was easy getting in. It, it, it was,
0: worked out for you. Huh? Yeah, no stops. No yeah. nothing.
1: I've had friends that have been bribed until told no, them. The no, no stops. Pain. Hold on. That's fucking nothing. crazy. No stops. No passport checks. No bribes. no In Russia. In Russia. Nothing. <laughs> it was... The, one of the easier trips I've ever had and I was prepared for the worst because my I'm buddy that sure. started this thing he and his wife ran out of money paying people off and they were threatening to take their passports and and they they had no more money and yeah. like they he Holy thought he was being fuck. funny taking a picture of one of the soldiers and the soldiers came and smashed the camera and um that's not funny <laughs> and well that's, after it is that's kind of scary right? yeah so I was prepared for I'm like oh dude and I went by myself um so I was like, oh, f- dude, what's this going to be like? And fortunately, like it was smooth sailing. Like I say, thank God for invasion of Ukraine because the <laughs> military was distracted. <laughs> Sorry terrible. if you're Ukrainian, but <laughs> it was cool for me. All right.
0: That's four. Going on to five. <laughs>
1: uh, Elbris, Kilimanjaro, uh, Karsten, uh, excuse me. Uh, well, that's debatable. Um, Kosciuszko, <laughs> which is uh, the tallest in Australia. And that one is quite literally a joke. It's, like 7,000 feet, you take a ski lift about halfway up the mountain and then it's a 45-minute hike to the top from there and you're up there with grannies and Tevas. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought a backpack full of beer and we're drinking on the summit. <laughs> but it's technically the tallest point in Australia.
2: Yeah.
1: So that's six. Uh, I hope the bears
0: were Foster's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this. That's not, that's not racist, is it? Against Australians? Yeah, yeah, fuck
1: them. They're white. Oh, fuck. uh, fucking cons, anyway. Uh, by the way, my first wife was an Australian.
0: Uh, might be fuck. sense of a little bit of bitter. Yeah, a little fucking bitterness there. So, looking like,
1: back, convicts. <laughs> I took your shit on the summit. Uh, then uh, Mount Vincent, which is the tallest point in Antarctica. Which was an interesting experience of... Antarctica? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. The fuck have you been doing, man? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, the things you do when you decide to fucking sign up for weird goals when you hate doing the object. That's fucking badass, though. It was really cool. It's, it- uh, yeah, you fly to the southernmost point of Chile. Uh, Punta Arenas is the town. And, a lot, and then there's another side on Argentina where a lot of cruises because people can cruise to Antarctica it's to see the, the fucking emperor penguins and stuff like yeah. that and to say that you've cruised to Antarctica, although uh, the Drake Passage can be pretty intense. Um, but you fly on this crazy Russian cargo jet that during the summer these guys are like taking off in Africa from gold mines and, like getting shot at. Like these guys are hard <laughs> motherfuckers that fly this plane. The Indiana Jones theme music oh, yeah. is going it's on, just on like in my, my 1976 right shitbag machine. <laughs> which just has like a jet engine in your ear for five hours, <laughs> and they hand you earplugs when you get on. And then your uh, your meal on the plane is a bologna sandwich and a, a coke. That when we did the math on how much it cost to ship stuff, I think the coke costs like 35 bucks to ship and get on to Antarctica. Holy shit! Because this flight they charge this flight is cost 250 grand to run this flight. Um, on this plane, at least that's how much they charge. And um, they've got to have enough gas to do round-trip. And the weather's got to be good enough to do round-trip in one day because there's no gas refueling in Antarctica. And once they get no stuck, shit. they get stuck, as it turns out. <laughs> so they have to be able to get back out the same day. But, I mean, you fly when you're flying in, like, you just see these for literally thousands of miles, like, you just see this wide expanse of, like, ice and nothing and, like, these mountains that have never been touched by anybody and that's
0: on the outer perimeter of the flat disk we live on in the solar system right yes yes it stretches all (laughs) the way around that flat (laughs) bit of the earth jesus christ yeah i had to throw a flat earth joke in there i'm sorry it's antarctica right it is antarctica and i mean it
1: is technically on the edge it just wraps around (laughs) and we didn't fall off the edge of the earth surprisingly that's weird. <laughs> I was fully expecting it any minute. It's like a waterfall or something. Uh, but it's, it's cool because at least for the next, and I can't remember when the treaty ends, but it's a treaty. Uh, Antarctica currently is administered by like 37 or 47, don't quote me on that, countries uh, that more or less have created this treaty of how Antarctica is going to be treated. Um, And one of the the ways in which they only let this one commercial operator fly down there or operate down there, and all trash, everything has to be brought out, which is cool to the extent that something's kind of a pain. Like, if you're walking between your campsite, and let's say you accidentally spill a little coffee, you got to go out and scoop it up and melt it down, and then you you ship the coffee out. And then there's these designated pee holes that if you get pee around the pee hole, scoop it up, melt it down, and fly it out. Like, everything comes out. Everything. Everything comes out. That's fucking insane. Which in the moment is mildly annoying. Uh, but it's awesome because then you just see this pristine like, yeah. part of the world that is looks like nobody has ever Unfucked touched it. Unfucked by man. Unfucked. There's no, <laughs> there's no permanent fixtures. Uh, nothing. So it's just ice for hundreds of miles. And you land at, um, it's called Union Glacier is, is the camp that they've built down there. And that's the ice is like 9,000 feet thick. So you're like 9,000 feet above sea level when you land on the ground uh, in Antarctica because the ice is so thick. Jesus. Um, yeah. So you get to have this, I mean, just super cool, pristine experience. And um, yeah, when they do the prep, like the safety briefing before you fly, they just really stress the ability for you to take care of yourself and really look after cold injuries because that flight comes and goes once every three weeks, period. So like if shit hits the fan, you got to be able to take care of yourself, or you're on your own for three weeks. It's like there's no Jesus. emergency evacuation, yeah. you're not getting out of there if something no. happens. So
0: you're not walking to the Hilton or Marriott down <laughs> no. the ice pack, get your f- pillow fluffed or <laughs> going to Walgreens <laughs> to get some Advil. Jesus Christ! So Antarctica's number five or number six uh,
1: of the ones I've rattled off. I think that's six. So we're back to Everest. Back to Everest. Do
0: we yeah. want to take it quick? Piss break, get you some more water and/or Let's a beer, it. yeah, and come back and rap about Everest. Let's do it. So that right. was number seven. Number seven. No, this is number. This seven. is number seven. This is number seven. Jumps ahead of yourself a little bit there, buddy. Yeah. Mount Everest. Mount Everest. So you mentioned you had a couple attempts.
1: Yeah, two, three attempts. The two real attempts. The first attempt was um, I attempted on the south side in Nepal, which is where most uh, it's the most popular route to attempt. And if you've seen the movie Into Thin Air, that's where it was filmed, and that's where that event took place was on the south side. So I did get to walk through that ice fall that they showed in the movie. Is Damn. While though sensationalized a bit is fairly accurate depiction of what you get to walk through is it's this portion of the mountain where the glacier is going over rock and it's moving at about three feet a day. So you get these big chunks of ice that can be the size of a house or a car and they're moving all the time. So it's also why it's not uncommon for those things to sometimes collapse while people are in it. Holy in shit. Ice, uh, ice fall, which happens. Um, it hasn't happened for a couple of years. Um, But it does happen, and it's also when you see, like, the ladders crossing the big crevasses and you see, like, drops 100 feet, um, you get to experience all that, which uh, is intense. (laughs) Yeah. So uh,
0: I would imagine that it could could be.
1: (laughs) Well, well, the advantage, actually, you often go up through the ice fall in the middle of the night, and the theory is that you're going in the middle of the night where it's colder, where in, in theory the ice should be colder and frozen and not mobile, there's really kind of no evidence to that. It's just that's how people have been climbing, so that's how teams <laughs> continue to climb. But the psychological advantage is when it's dark, you don't really get to see what's around you except in your immediate purview, so right. you don't get to see what you're walking through. So psychologically, it's actually kind of nice. And then when you come back down, it's daylight, and you get to see what you walk through, and it's like, holy shit, like, yeah, you see these big seracs of ice that are, like, could keep, come off at literally any moment, and they're the size of a house or a car. Um, holy shit, these, are they... Uh, elevated above you, or you're kind of hiking you? in what between it and like above them. And like, it's, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. And the route changes every day. So, there's this group of Sherpas that are called uh, the icefall doctors, and their job throughout the season is to keep setting the route through the icefall. And they're like resetting and changing the ladders and ropes and stuff like virtually every day through the whole season. Um, so what? people can hike through it,
0: yeah, safely navigate this part of the summit, presumably.
1: <laughs> Until it isn't. Uh, but the first attempt was—it was cool because you get to go to Nepal, which is awesome, and you get to trek through the Kumbu Valley, which is a really special place in the world, um, and is where they believe that um, Tibetan Buddhism came into Nepal by way of the Kumbu Valley for 600 years ago. So there's lots of monasteries as you trek into base camp. So those that's got
0: to be super cool. So fucking amazing, dude.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just really cool to see, yeah, these monks that are still living on the side of the mountain in this monastery that's been there for hundreds of years and um, almost, I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere, although now you get all these trek people coming in to climb mountains or whatever.
0: Yeah, but still, it's got to be a pretty magical and special place. Yeah, it is. And with your goal and what you're trying to achieve, I can't even imagine what that's. It's got to be surreal, dude.
1: Yeah, it is, and there's uh, a monk who's uh, now passed away. But this guy, the Lama Geishi, his name, has, he was a Lama, and his name was Geishi, and he was the guy that you always had to go visit to get blessed before going in to climb the mountain. You went and talked to him, and you went into his little like monastery house hut, and he has got like pictures of all these like A World Flat class climbers and just all these people over the years that have gone and climbed, <laughs> you know, Everest and you know come back and see him. So his room in, is an experience and then yeah kind of getting your blessing from him of getting safe passage on the mountain whether it works or not is still a cool experience and there's probably
0: um, something to it but that could just be me well, there's <laughs> lots of people that have been blessed and been killed so oh hey alright so In the way to humble yeah. bring me right back down to earth dude. <laughs> it's great it makes you feel good when you're leaving
1: <laughs> and we can get back to the original Everest blessings and um, talk about the, the forewarning they had but Um, (laughs) over the course of this trip, the group that I was a part of, um, I say the team vibe got toxic. Um, and it was really by way of the guide that we had, uh, was really starting to get nervous with one of the members of the group, this, uh, Dr. Manoj, who's a total stud, one of the nicest humans I've ever met on the planet. He was attempting for his second time and he had kept meticulous notes of what his performance and feeling was the first time he was on the mountain, like when he would trek from village to village, like what his heart rate was, like how long did it take him? How, what was his feeling? And so he had all this data about his first performance yeah. and shared it with him. And, you know, basically said, Hey, I'm a slower climber. I'm a slower dude. Is, is this going to be okay? And they took his money and let him on, but the guide, it made him really nervous. And so as we started going further and further, you know, we were still not even at base camp yet. Um, he started really giving the guy a hard time about how slow he was. And then he tried to pull us into it by telling us, That it was going to be a safety hazard for us. Like, oh, guys, when you're going through the ice fall and this guy's going through slow, it's going to be a safety hazard for you. And, like, really trying to get us to, like, kind of, like, gang up on him. Yeah. And, like, it just got worse and worse. And, like, it, it was like he was really being just mean with him. And it was clear that the guide was just done guiding Everest. Like, I think it was his ninth climb. With the company, it and he was in his mid to late taking his toll, and he was fucking done. And I get it, like, and he was afraid yeah. of the ice fall, and I, and I, again, I get it. Um, and like hell, half the time he had satellite internet for some of the trip, so he was just like planning his kite surfing trip to Thailand when we were done. So like, he was mentally not in the game. The guide.
0: That's gonna be fucking terrible. It's it's <laughs> terrible, and
1: it's terrifying. Like yeah. here, you have this guy that should be instilling. Um, a healthy sense of respect for the ice fall is one because it is a very dangerous objective hazard. Like as I was talking about earlier, you have these big chunks of ice moving three feet a day that can that do collapse all the time, and you yeah. can be there. Um, but it's a necessity if you want to climb the mountain on that side on that side. So it just got worse and worse and worse. And like the team was like kind of getting coming apart, and we did our first rotation up to Camp One which is almost 21,000 feet. And we were going up to the icefall. And once we got to the top of the icefall, I started coughing up blood. But it turned out that it was just my throat was agitated from uh, the altitude and the dry air and, and stuff. It wasn't anything serious like pulmonary edema or anything. It was just my, wow. my throat was agitated. But for me, uh, that was the icing on the cake. Like Once we got to the top, we, we all collectively decided we wanted to turn around and back, go back down to base camp. And me and two other members of the group just, like, sat in a tent and just, like, spilled our guts to each other for, like, four hours about this experience we were having and what it, what it was like. And I had just gotten engaged. And uh, one of the the lady, uh, Trudy, who I uh, ended up summiting with eventually, amazing woman. She's got, like, six kids in her mid-50s, like, done marathons. She'd also done the seven summits. She was feeling uneasy. And this guy, John, and we just decided, you know what? fuck it like we've got families at home we've got friends at home this mountain is always going to be here yeah like this doesn't feel right it doesn't feel good it doesn't feel safe and so we pulled the plug and went home we and the guide, he seemed totally blown away by it but he just was totally oblivious went back to planning his kite so surfing give him trip and, bird
0: as you walked off the fucking
1: mountain basically <laughs> and went back to Kathmandu and went home and pulled the plug on the trip Jesus Christ. That's the first attempt. That was number one. Uh, Number two was the year... Let's see. That was 2013. 2014 was when they had the big... uh, No, that was... There was like 12 people killed in the ice fall because it collapsed and people were in it. I
0: remember hearing about that and I'm pretty sure it was something you posted. Um, That was the year before. So then
1: the year I... So then my second attempt, uh, I got to base camp on the north side... Uh, right when there was a nine point three earthquake that hit Kathmandu, so there was this major earthquake that hit not far from where we were, and it it caused a major avalanche on the south side of Everest, and just the debris and the wind, uh, the air pressure from the avalanche itself like picked up rocks and hucked it through base camp, and I think total twenty three people were killed um, on the south side uh, during that, and we were, we had just got to the, this is I'd switch sides on the to the mountains. I was on the north side and I'd come through Tibet or at least what people like to call Tibet. Um, <laughs> that's fucking China. Um, and we had just gotten there, sat down and it, like, it felt like somebody was just shaking the table for a minute and everyone kind of like looking around like, who's fucking shaking the table? And then eventually it dawned on everybody that it was an earthquake and you stand and then it's just like this waving, undulating feeling that it's, for those of you that have been in an earthquake you certainly know but it's the most unnatural unsettling feeling i've ever experienced uh to that extent and you're just standing there and where we were was in this big basin and as it turns out was fairly protected from rock fall and things but at the moment we didn't know that and you're just standing there and basically you're just staring at each other like accepting your fate like you can't run like there's nowhere to run yeah so you just stand there and just like stare at each other like is this it? Like, is the is the ground gonna open up? Because oh, it's just this big, huge, like wave feeling coming through the ground. It's like, is the ground gonna open up? Is a rock? Because you could hear rocks coming down off the peaks that oh, were near the base. You just listen oh. to that and it's like the fucking. <laughs> <me> fucking chills. <laughs> you're just staring at each other and some people are crying. And this guy Charlie, who is um, uh, this vet that had lost his leg and was gonna climb as an amputee. He, just, he almost had like a smile on his face. Like, fuck it. You know? Like, Nothing you can do. <laughs> well, good More point, whisk. Charlie. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's do shots. <laughs> uh, and, short, and then, you know, settle down. And then we were able to actually uh, turn on the radios and hear the south side of the mountain. So we were, as the crow flies, 12 miles away from the south side base camp okay. in Nepal, even though we're on the Tibetan side. Uh, but i mean man it was just you just heard chaos like you heard dining tents getting turned in like er's and people like triaging folks that had been smacked by boulders flying across you know camp and you're just listening to them talk about finding bodies and just like just sitting there going, holy shit this is why
0: you're waiting to
1: climb well, we up were mountain. just we had just gotten to base camp so we hadn't done anything on the mountain yet we just got in like that day uh when this had happened and so um it was really weird because like every day the story changed like with our liaison from the, the, the Chinese government and every day they'd come in and tell us a different story of like if we were going to be able to get out like at first they came and told us or rather they reminded us the fact that we were all on a group visa which meant we were all having to tra- travel to Tibet together and our group visa said we wouldn't be leaving until early June and it said we wouldn't be we'd be driving out and driving through Nepal. Well, the road to Nepal got washed out by the an avalanche on that side. Fuck. And like I'm like okay, what? So like are you going to just hold us here in base camp for four weeks? What are you going to do? And then the next day they're like, "Okay, we'll do you a favor and you know, we'll break all your visas apart. And you got to get Chinese visas and you're going to fly through Beijing." And then the next day it was like, "You're going to do And then eventually one day they said, "Okay, you're you guys are flying out of Lhasa, which is the capital of Tibet. Like you're flying out of Lhasa tomorrow. Like you guys got to go now." And it's like a 2-day drive to to Lhasa from base camp. Um, <laughs> and you're leaving tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and you're leaving tomorrow. So, like, basically, we just drove, like, 18 hours straight. Because the funny thing is, is uh, on the roads in Tibet is be, there's, um, you can't drive faster than, I think it was, like, 20 or 30 miles an hour. And then they have checkpoints um, every 50 kilometers. Jesus, dude. So, you have these checkpoints. So, what a lot of the drivers would do is they would drive, like, a bat out of hell between the checkpoints and then about 10 minutes away from the checkpoint, they'd pull over the side of the road, and then we'd just sit there for a half hour. Because they would time you between checkpoints, and then based on how long it was, you know, if you're going 20 miles an hour, you yeah. should get there in an hour. Right. So instead, they just drove like a bat out of hell, and then we stopped. So it still took us an hour, but we drove super fast in between, and then stopped, <laughs> and then he we went out and fucking drank six Red Bulls, and smoked a pack of cigarettes. And then we got and in. 30 minutes, and, and got, got back got on back, on the back road. in. But Jesus yeah, Christ. But they basically relaxed all those and let us just fl- drive out of there as fast as we could and, to get to Lhasa. And then we, at that time, we flew back through Kathmandu. And like it was just so sad because um, just the bureaucracy that exists in that country, in particular in, in many uh, third world countries, they just couldn't cut through the red tape to hand out aid. So then, by the time even we got there, and this is four or five days after the earthquake. Yeah. There's just like pallets and pallets of aid just sitting on the tarmac at the the airport because the government couldn't get out of its own way to like let it get distributed. Like they wanted to. It's be just in fucking of, sitting there. It's just literally sitting on the tarmac. Some of it being food that was just rotting because yeah. they couldn't or wouldn't get out of their own way. Like they wouldn't let these agencies do anything. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. And then they try to, of course, blame everybody else, and they want to just make sure it's controlled and it's yeah just bullshit like bureaucracy. Fucking baffled yeah. on that. Um, so that was attempt number two, so that one didn't really count. <laughs> um, but turns out travel insurance <laughs> is a really helpful thing. Uh, so when an act of God happens, travel insurance refunds 100% uh, of what you pay Holy for shit. a trip.
0: And as you already mentioned, it's not a, a cheap trip to venture no. to <laughs> Mount Los Everest. Pro. and
1: Yeah. I mean, independent of... Anything, I mean, when you start unpacking, the expense is, you know, it's not uncommon to be on the mountain for eight weeks. So to be, you have eight weeks of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and yeah. snacks, food, and then have the gas and stoves to cook said food, and have tents, and have... I mean, just like, have that stuff for that long a period of time is Just, just to be safe, to and be efficient, safe. and effective totally and to get the shit there like to transport it like just all the logistics that go into just the event itself independent of what companies charge um it's just it's just not cheap when you think about being somewhere for two months and um having groups of people and it's just yeah it's just it's a logistical nightmare acrobatic feat. like it's amazing that they're able to pull it off in some ways like yeah all the shit that they've got to have and be there and tested and make sure like Gear is safe, and when you're using oxygen, making sure that they're filled and that they're the regulators are used, like just everything. So there's just so much to it. Um, I wouldn't even know where to
0: begin, and rightly so. I haven't done shit to prepare <laughs> for <laughs> reaching the summit on Mount Everest, dude. So third attempt. Um, so third attempt was travel you insurance. Travel insurance kicked player. in, saved your ass, gave you the opportunity to actually go and finally right. accomplish the seventh. Totally. Um,
1: so a couple highlights from the third one. Uh, one was uh, one of the stories I tell, and I kind of re- retell the story of Everest for me, which is uh, the first opportunity to experience severe um, altitude sickness when I just got to base camp the third time. And I wasn't feeling good in it. Like It was like the second day I was there. Wasn't feeling good. I was throwing up my lunch, throwing up my dinner, um, and then, you know, try to go to bed, but, like, I was just feeling cr- worse and worse and worse. Um, and then we checked uh, my Pultox, which is basically checking the amount of oxygen that's flowing in your in your blood. And when you're in a hospital and at sea level, you should be between 99 and 100%. Like, your blood should be totally saturated with oxygen. And if you're in a hospital and it drops below 90 they generally – Start getting nervous and put you on oxygen, like if you're in a hospital here okay. at sea level, and they'll intubate you and like put oxygen and you're on that. So uh, mine dropped to 68%. Holy um, shit. And generally, if you look at Wikipedia, unconsciousness happens around 55 to 60%. Um, so mine had dropped quite low and then I had as a result of that I had the con- or the privilege of taking some pretty serious meds that you get for altitude sickness uh, one of which is called dexamethasone and it's um, used commonly in the mountains for um, what's called cerebral edema which is when your brain swells at altitude and it keeps your brain from swelling but where it came from was like cancer patients that had brain cancer and to, like to relieve the swelling in their brains but now it's pretty it's fairly commonly used um, in climbing mountains for that reason so I got to take some of that. I got a shot of that. Um, I got, uh, what else did I take? Diamox, which is a pretty common and pretty mellow altitude sickness pill that anybody going to kind of any altitude can go take. Um, and then slept on oxygen for the first night.
0: Welcome back. <laughs> this, is, this is day
1: one, day two, of trip three. And then I'm, you know, again, back to earlier death spiral conversations. I'm death spiraling because... I'm like, well, fuck, does this mean my trip's already over? hasn't even started. Like, if I'm this sick this early into the trip, like, yeah. how am I going to be able to climb? How's this going to work? And fuck, like, I'm not coming back. And, like, I just... <laughs> mental death spiral. Uh, and our expedition doctor, Monica Pires, who has been on seven or eight uh, Everest expeditions as an expedition doctor nice. and is... An ER doc and in, in um, Knows what the Fuck, she's doing <laughs> super smart dude, super smart lady. Spent tons of time at altitude, been tons of expeditions, and has helped. And she's just like, I'm like, so what does this mean? She's like, mm, doesn't mean anything. She's like, if you recover, you recover. So she's like, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, the shit like to See what happens. Yeah, like if you don't recover, then we'll we'll cross that bridge tomorrow. But let's take it day by day, and you know, you're not climbing for, you're not gonna summit for six weeks from now, so don't worry about it. so I'm like stupid me (laughs) an idiot I was being such a pussy man up next time Um, yeah so she's like we'll just watch it so fortunately the next day I was kind of right as rain and back to normal and um, good to go so then you know one of the things on the mountain one of the not one of the reason why these bigger mountains why you're there for so long is you got to do rotations up and down the mountain for your body to get used to the altitude. You have so, to acclimate. Mm-hmm. Acclimate. Yep. So like you go... Speak fucking proper English. You start <laughs> there. And then when you can't speak, your guy just tells you to keep going anyway. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, so then we... Uh, yeah, so you just move up higher on the mountain, then you come back down, and you move up higher, and you come back down, you move up higher so your body just gets used to it. So we moved up to Advanced base Camp, and yeah, the original plan wasn't to be there as long as we were... Um, but all at the same time, it was the first time the company I was, I was, that I was with had operated on the North side. Yeah. So they're still kind of figuring out what their program was. So that was another reason why we ended up spending so much time, uh, at 21,000 feet and we just, you know, yeah, keep doing rotations. Like you go out and hike. And while though most days, like all you want to do is just take a nap and lay in bed. But it was in my experience, the times that I did, it was hands down the worst that I ever felt was when I just, uh, took a nap and it makes sense when you think about it because what happens is when you start sleeping your respiratory rate drops which then means like the circulation of blood flow and oxygen slows down and you just feel shittier like yeah. when you're just laying down not doing anything as much as you don't want to move so actually getting out and hiking or just walking around like you'll, you will feel better um, every single time as opposed to just laying there so I got to have that experience at advanced base camp I think I took they ha- you had the ability to take a shower and i think i took in the 3 weeks i was there i maybe took 2 uh showers just because at that altitude and everest kind of creating its own weather patterns you'd if the sun was out um you could have days where you could kind of be in a short sleeve shirt it would be warm enough that you it was actually quite warm especially in the tents and if you got any cloud cover, it would be a 30 or 40 sh- swing in temperature. Oh, and then you'd fuck. have like a down yeah. puffy on and your beanie yeah. on and your gloves on. And you're shaking like a dog shit in razor blades because you're just so cold. Um, and then the sun comes back out and then you're sweating your balls off. And it just like <laughs> swings back and forth. Um
0: Actually, sounds very similar to weather in spring and fall in Utah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not too dissimilar from Salt Lake, where it's going to be what eighty tomorrow, and then fifty on Friday. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So we did that. Uh, spent a lot of time at Advanced Base Camp, and uh, one was a acclimatization and another was yeah. We ended up just waiting for a weather window, which then kept us there longer than we otherwise would have, so that we didn't miss it. But we had to do at least one rotation up to what's called the North Col, which is about twenty-three thousand feet. So you hike up onto this vertical <sighs> wall of ice uh, and get up there. And, and the day we were well, here, using, you
0: mentioned some of your gear earlier, but you climbing in with ice cleats and yeah, axes so, and shit.
1: Yeah, so you got. Uh, we didn't have ice axes just because there was fixed lines, and it was like one extra thing to carry. But we did have, like, our crampons on, like, connected to fixed rope.
0: How could I forget that Because <laughs> you probably don't use them on a daily <laughs> basis. Yeah, but the 12-year-old in me realizes they rhyme with tampon. Never mind. Yeah. Anyways. It's, more than once. it's taking us off course yet again.
1: <laughs> so, we'll go up to the North Pole, doing a acclimatization rotation up there. And we're going to hike up a little bit higher, but then we're going to sleep at North And We're still at this point, we're not on oxygen, even though we're at 23,000 feet. Um, again, just trying to get our bodies as used to as high on the mountain as possible. And the predominant reason is, even though we were planning on using oxygen, the higher that your body is used to being not on oxygen means that if oxygen system fails, then your your body is better prepared to kind of deal with that, as opposed to... Like if you're on a plane and you lose oxygen at 30,000 feet, it's, it's a big fucking deal because your, gen, your body's not even close to acclimated uh, to being that kind of altitude. And you'll, you'll generally pass out and die pretty quickly um, if you're just like dropped at 30,000 feet, which is why oxygen comes Jesus, out of this the... roof. But anyway, I was, you know, we did a, a hike a little bit higher up onto the mountain and I just, I wasn't feeling good. So I turned around a little bit before everybody else. Um, and same kind of story as when we first got to base camp. Like I threw up my lunch, didn't really think too much of it. Cause it's like, man, we're at 23,000 feet. Probably not going to feel that great for the first night. Anyway, threw up my dinner and, uh, then went to sleep. And fortunately I had a tent mate, Trudy, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was in there with me because apparently in the middle of the night I woke up and just like sat straight up and I was like, <laughs> like, just like screaming gibberish that I have no recollection of. And so she calls the guide over because she's panicking because I'm just like sitting there like delirious, like sitting up being weird. And he comes (laughs) over. He's like, Brian, what's going on, man? What's going on? You know, talk to me. How are you feeling? I'm like, you know, I just feel like such an asshole right now. He's like, oh, really? Why? Like, you know, I'm just I'm parked in my car and I'm waiting to pick up my kid, but I'm just not moving. And there's all these cars parked behind me. They just want to pick up their kids. I'm just such a dick. And he's like. Interesting. Hmm. Make a <laughs> note of that. Write that shit down. Write that shit down. So, you know, what else you feeling? So he brings out the little pulse oximeter to test uh, how much, you know, where what my blood oxygen saturation was. And recalling from earlier in the conversation, you know, at sea level, it should be about 100%. And like I say, if you're in a hospital and you drop below 90, they generally freak out and put you on oxygen. Right. Uh, I dropped to at least 44 while sitting in this tent. Um, and when I told my doctor, when I returned, when I was getting a, uh, checkup or a physical, he just shakes his head. He's like, that's just right before I often pronounce people dead is, um, <laughs> when what? So what I can tell you though is it's what super peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. It
0: seems like you were extremely courteous in that state. Of I life. was just worried
1: about other people, man. I was worried about how I was affecting them. <laughs> I was pissed them off in my car. So, you made it to the summit on this third
0: and final through all this shit or so is there all the shit.
1: So, no, I mean, there... these are the, the these are the big trials or tribulations yeah. or whatever you want to call it. It's, you know, one of the things I gave this presentation at work and kind of the theme was defining moments and, you know, just having these things come up and again recalling that my wife is pregnant at home and I've been gone and I've been feeling like shit and I didn't really quite appreciate the gravity of the situation until I was off the mountain and like kind of retelling the story and really thinking about what had happened at the time reflecting on it right yeah like yeah, yeah really processing what had happened um, then it became more profound like I don't recall telling Mary Beth the details of that while I was on the mountain because at the time it didn't seem I don't recall it feeling like a big deal yeah um, but turns out it kind of was um, but yeah, we were able to, you know, was it again, slept another night on oxygen and then we waited for our weather window and, um, yeah, went up and summited and, um, got there earlier than we'd planned. So it was dark when we summited, which was a little bit of a bummer, but on the way down when it's light, um, uh, that's when you start, uh, seeing the bodies and you start stepping over people's hands and, uh, bodies that have been there 10, 15, 20, 30 years and, um, Again, another thing that you don't really process in the moment because you're just thinking got to get the fuck down and go yeah. off the mountain just get down I'm as far as you possibly can. not to be can. one
0: of those bodies.
1: Yeah, and just think like looking around and be like, I'm sure those guys didn't intend to be here and I mean it, it, like the mountain can just really get ugly really quick for people. Like your health can deteriorate really really fast. You can get just um, uh, super exhausted or you know, cold and people just sit down and just don't it's get just up. It's just a complete mental breakdown. Totally. Like you just give up like, and, but I can tell you it's super peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fortunately we we're Damn. able to get down and off the mountain, <clears throat> man. And back home to a, uh, a pregnant wife.
0: Yeah. To,
1: uh, and to bear. And ultimately to bear. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, mountain set me up for being able to deal with, uh, being in discomfort for a long period of time. (laughs) Fuck, man.
0: Yeah. Brian, I I use this podcast as an excuse to to reach out to people that I don't talk to enough. As we get older, we seem to stretch ourselves thin, and we don't always talk to the people that we genuinely care about. And uh, this is a perfect example of that for me to have you come over... To my little studio in my office at my house and rap about these seven summits and your time on Mount Everest and I've known you a long fucking time mad love for you you're Likewise, crazy dude. motherfucker dude <laughs> <laughs> in the best way yeah. um, do you have anything else you want to mention
1: or bring up before we wrap this thing up dude, we can still talk for hours because I'd love to reciprocally hear your story and what you've been up to but no I really appreciate that you reached out it was I was stoked that you wanted to do it less that, you know, I really love just talking about myself and more just an opportunity <laughs> to, to catch up with you and see you again. It's, it's been far too long. And to your point, it's, it's part of getting older, I guess, of life sets in and you start doing different things. But it sure is fucking awesome to see you again.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. Do you have any questions for me before we uh, again wrap this thing up? No, I don't know. I need to find an excuse to get a beer together now. I think we found one i'd love to have you back Fun on the podcast life. maybe we can focus on uh, particular summits and what those things were i think my uh, audience however big or especially small as it may be it kind of has an idea of who you are and what you've been up to and maybe that's that's a direction for us to, to kind of get an excuse to hang out a little bit more but totally oh fucking one right more, on man. dude yeah dude so good to see hand. you way good to see you <laughs> thank you for coming on my pleasure and that's another episode of the Dead Serial Podcast. Huge shout out to Brian for taking some time to come over, shoot the shit, share that story with us. You can find out more details about his adventures at brianosoro.com. That's B R Y A N O S O R O.com. You can also follow the companion Instagram account for this podcast at dead underscore serial. I'm going to leave you all tonight with some Pinkerton thugs. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.